This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Happy October, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader, the show where we talk about markets, trading, and psychology with some of the best in the industry. My name is Jack Pelzer, and I certainly hope that you're all having a ghoulish time thus far, because October is when markets have historically been pretty freaky-deaky, though some more secular analysts claim this is just a myth. But I dare those non-believers to spend the night locked in an abandoned WeWork and then tell me there's nothing strange about these markets. $47 billion for an office college dorm abomination. It's not natural, people. But I digress. You see, listeners, I uh, must apologize for these fever-rattled thoughts of spoiled IPOs because I've been out of the office for the last two days with the flu. It was a less-than-pleasant experience, so I would highly recommend that everyone get vaccinated. But despite my weakened body, I have returned today because I would never in a million years miss the opportunity to introduce today's guest for our Limit Up interview. Since 2000, he has been the president of Yosemite Asset Management, He's also a writer for This Week on Wall Street and even worked 12 years at the CME trading currencies. He truly is a man for all seasons. I am, of course, talking about Mr. Gary Morrow. <laughs> Jeff Carter and Gary should have a nice little bonding session over Forex. But since we're getting near Halloween, I'm hoping they also get into a little bit of the relationship between trading and fear. I have a strange feeling that they will. But before we get to our conversation with Gary, it would be diabolical of me not to first get a check on this week's markets from a man who always chooses trick over treat, such as his dedication to discipline and delayed gratification, Mark Meadows, and this week's market reaction. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's how I feel about trading in October. Volatility is great, but it's also volatile. That can make things challenging. Do I go long or short? Today's trend is so different than yesterday's. What's the main push or pull on the market right now? Imagine this. You were, as I was, in a position long two NASDAQ contracts heading into the last minutes of Wednesday's trade. The price was making new highs on the day, and I was 10 points in the money. I went to get a water and walked back to find the price 30 points lower and extremely offered. The market changed in an instant. Fortunately, I had a stop that got me out for just a small loss. No news came out during this time. The sellers just took hold. I could call this a bad beat or be upset, but instead, I look at it for what it was. It was a good trade. It had an unfortunate result, but that's trading. It's all about probabilities. Those who don't have stops think their view of the market is 100% correct. Those with stops realize that bad things happen to good people. So always keep stops and keep them tight in volatile markets. And that's your market reaction. Thank you, Mark. Like a warrior poet, our guest today is both an asset manager and prolific writer. Prolific writer, that's a tough word to say, folks, but he is. We're absolutely thrilled that he took some time out of his very busy schedule to talk with us, so please find yourself a comfy seat, throw in your best earbuds, and get ready to learn about trading currencies and investing from a few of the best around. Our very own Jeff Carter and the president of Yosemite Asset Management, Gary Morrow. 
Welcome to the Limit Up Podcast brought to you by Top Step Trader. My name is Jeff Carter. You can find me online at pointsandfigures.com and on Twitter at pointsandfigures. We welcome to the program today Gary Morrow from thisweekonwallstreet.com. Welcome to the program, Gary. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yeah. So you're coming to us live from where in California today? I am in San Luis Obispo, California. It's right smack dab in the central coast. We're about halfway between LA and San Francisco. Okay. And you you didn't start your life out, out there. You started somewhere else, yes? Yes, correct. I was born at Cook County Hospital in Chicago and uh, shortly after that, we uh, our family moved to Joliet, Illinois, and that's where I grew up. And uh, I went to high school there. And uh, after met my wife during high school. Wow, where'd you go to high school? Not a Catholic school, then? <laughs> no, not a Catholic school. No, I went to Joliet West High School, the one of the big public high schools in town. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my wife went to uh, St. Francis Academy which is the Catholic girls' school in town. And uh, shortly after college, a few years after that, we got married and moved to Naperville and uh, lived in Naperville for a number of years. All three of our kids were born in Naperville. And uh, then in the early 90s, we built a house in Lamont and lived in Lamont for a number of years. Awesome. And if people don't know, that's kind of in the southwestern part of Chicago. Naperville's a a big suburb, thriving downtown. Um, and Terry Terry Duffy, the chairman of the Merck, lives in Lamont uh, as well. So how many years were you on the trading floor in Chicago? I started working as a runner uh, on the trading floor. Uh, would have been, I believe, the summer of 82, maybe, maybe the summer of 81. So is that the old Merck or the new Merck? That was the old Merck. That was 444 Jackson, West Jackson. Right, right, which is now a health club. Yes, yep. <laughs> if anybody goes downtown, it's right next to the Chicago River, and it looks like the Hancock building turned on its side. Exactly, exactly right. Interesting. Yeah, I was on that floor, but never worked on that floor. It was uh, incredibly crowded when I visited because they had just opened the S&Ps, and it was a zoo. Yes, it was a zoo. I, I traded on that floor for about exactly one month before we moved to the new to the new mark. Interesting. What did you trade? I started in a Swiss franc. My summer job, um, I was a runner for Cargill for a summer, maybe two summers, uh, before um, I graduated and got a job with Merrill Lynch uh, after college. And I ended up being a runner that from a near a desk at a desk that kind of handled all the currency trades. So it was just kind of natural for me to be in the currency area at that time. So we were doing a lot of Swiss franc, Deutschmark, British pound, Japanese yen, Canadian dollar uh, at that point. So And you were in you were in the pit. Well not to start. At starting I started just as I did in the summer job as a runner and about three or four months into it I, I got the opportunity to hold a deck in the Swiss franc pit for the, the Merrill Lynch broker and I had the upside, the upside of the oh, deck. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, we split that deck. With, there was a, a couple of fellas that next to us that um, uh, had the downside of the Merrill deck plus all of their other business. 
So for the uninitiated that have come to trading only on a computer, you know, we used to do this on floors. Gary, Gary and I have gray hair. And so a runner was somebody that took a physical piece of paper from a desk, a phone bank, and ran it to a particular part of the pit and gave it to a deck holder who had the deck, who handed the order into the broker. And Gary had the upside. So if the market was rallying, he was pretty busy. If the market was breaking, he was not very busy. And so um, I held a deck in the Eurodollar options back in 1986, and I had both sides and all puts and calls, so that was fun. But uh, that's the way uh, business was done. So then you did you fill orders then, or did you go in as a local? I had a real neat, unique situation. I was able to buy my seat, my IMM seat, before I even started trading. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I, I, I had some great advice from a family friend who said, you know, if you if your goal is really to trade, you know, your own account, you really should own your seat. You know, there's a lot of savings, of course, uh, involved with being a seat owner versus a seat leaser. So I followed that advice and I was able to purchase my seat. And of course, as soon as I bought it, it dropped, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's perfect. But I leased it out for about I had a six month lease at that time. I leased it out. I forget. I forget what it was, what I leased out for. Maybe it was 1400 bucks or something like that. And during that time, we were very busy in the Swiss Frank pit. I was learning. There's no better way to learn. And what year is this? 84 ish? This is November and December of 83. 83. Okay. Great. Yep. After my lease was up, that six month lease was up, I, I felt confident enough to start trading. So. I had enough money put together that I could um, have a you know nice little comfortable chunk of my trading account, and I started trading. I started being a local. Started scalping. Did you paper trade when you were deck holding? We did a little bit. Yes, we did a little bit. I, I had a stack of cards in my pocket, and you know we would, along with other uh, deck holders on, on my side of the pit, there we would fiddle around a little bit. Nothing really structured, you know, but. Um, it was a very good learning experience, you know, just uh, writing your trades down on the cards and, you know, getting a feel for uh, the stress involved with being wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is something you need to get used to in order to survive in there. Talk about that a little bit. That So Top Step Trader, uh, the way people come to this is they paper trade, kind of like we did when we were clerks. Right. And then... Um, they give them a little money after they see how they do uh, and back traders here um, to trade. So like traders, if, you, if you're if you a Limit Up uh, podcast listener and you trade on Top Step Trader, one of the things you can do to cut your fees is go ahead and lease a seat at CME. You can get a fee break rather than pay retail or you can buy a seat depending on, um, I think IOMs are down to 25000 but you can buy one depending on how much you trade. It's just a math equation. So talk about the stress of trading that you tried to prepare yourself for before you actually went into the pit. I really tried to focus my all of my trades on an exit strategy and that um, let my, my, my winning trades would just kind of take care of themselves. And I would always try and, and have an idea of of a, of a level that would that was uh, a max pain level, and I would cut at that point, and it'd be over, and I'd move on to the next trade. And th th that's you know 
emotion is a huge factor in there and it doesn't always, you know, work out that easily in that clear cut. But if I had a position on and I knew a level that was going to be my max pain and then as I got to be a bigger trader and, and, and spent more time in the pit, my risk parameters would naturally expand. Mm-hmm. Of course, the other side of that would be true too. My, I would be able to allow my, my good trades to run uh, better, um, run more. And in the currencies too, you know, I traded interest rates to start out. In the currencies, you had a, a lot more movement. Um, there was a lot more variability of the market up and down. So you had to be able to weather that sort of storm. Yes. Compared to like Euro dollar futures where it was kind of tick by tick, drop by drop, you know. Right. Exactly. And that that also lent itself for trading smaller quantities with the, you know, with the expanded ranges. So, I mean, you know, Euro dollar guys were trading 100 lot positions, which would probably, you know, I'm trading 10 lot positions and having the same, you know, risk parameters. Right, right, right. 10 lot was a big, I mean, that could be a big Swissy trade. I mean, those things could move 50, 60 points in a blink of an eye. I mean. No question about it. We would get into fast markets and, and 20, 30, 40, 50 points could go by and, you know, five tick increments. Yeah. At 12.50 a tick. Yep. Exactly right. Interesting. So I felt that I learned more from my losers than I did from my winners. Why is that? The winners, they just took care of themselves. And I was confident in what I did to, you know, to be on the right side of the market. But when I had a loser, um, you know, I want to move on as quickly as I could, but I would always try and make a mental note of, you know, what the heck am I doing bidding, you know, a tick above the market after the market's already run up six or seven points. You know, I just, there was always, always something there. I mean, always respect the trading gods, never get overconfident. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. The second you, you know, you have eight winning trades in a row and have a nice morning going and you're feeling really good about yourself and you're, you know, you're feeling a little confident and you decide to take that little bit extra position and step out a little bit further. And, you know, you're going to get smacked down again. So no kidding. The market is always right. The market's never wrong. It's always right. It's your trade that's wrong. It's your what you did is is potentially wrong uh, as far as initiating that trade. So for me, when I would look at the end of a really solid week of my trading performance, it would be at that level because I managed some really bad trades really well. Yeah, right. And that that kept me, you know, kept me in the game every day and, you know, week after week. Yeah, that is the game. Keeping yourself in the game, you know, Uh, you have to live to fight another day. Exactly. The Black Knight strategy doesn't work, you know. No. So interesting. And so why did you quit trading? Markets were busy in in the um, in the early 90s, Uh, had a really nice run from. 91 through 95 and the market started you know the currency market started changing the cme lost it too yes you know uh so it went it went back into the interbank market yep that was a big part of it volume was tailing off you know we're also dealing with the massive rally in tech stocks and the stock market kicking in in the mid 90s that was definitely absorbing a lot of 
you know, high risk money that normally maybe would have been trading currencies is now, you know, trading AOL. Yeah, that's a good point. So for people that haven't traded a long time, there is a pool of hot money that chases markets around and you'll see it. Um, so what Gary's talking about is maybe it was in the currencies, then it went to the tech stocks in the mid nineties. Then maybe it went to, you know, when that crapped out, maybe it went to bonds and it'll follow different markets from gold. You you can follow it. And, and there are traders that used to go from pit to pit to pit to pit, just following the hot money around. Yes, exactly. No question about it. And, you know, a, a lot of guys left the currency uh, quadrant to head over to the S&Ps. S&Ps were going crazy in 95. Crazy. Yes, they were. The market was so thick. It was super deep. The pit was very liquid. You could still go in there and trade. Well, at that point, you could trade one lots at 25 bucks a tick in the S&P and, and be able to survive in there. And um, that sucked up a lot of capital. A lot of traders were pulled out. And I just, I, I was at the point in my career, I didn't want to go through the battle of getting myself established in a new pit on the floor. It is a battle. It's just a battle. And I, not that I was old and I, I mean, I was 36, 35, 36, 37 years old. It wasn't that I was physically, I just mentally, I didn't feel like I wanted to go through that aggravation again. And I had always had this dream that, that I would end up off the floor and uh, trading off the floor and maybe, uh, you know, develop a hedge fund and, and, you know, continue my trading career in that regard. So is that what you wound up doing? So you've got this week on Wall Street. Uh, tell us about that. After leaving the floor, we we had the dream of moving to uh, the mountains, Colorado or Utah or somewhere in that range. Right, right. Who doesn't? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Especially after growing up in Joliet and and spending all that time. And, and, you know, the suburban sprawl, all those things were all factors. Weather, yeah, everything yeah, yeah. was all kind of a factor. You bet. And, you bet. We luckily ended up out here, which is which is fantastic. And and after we settled in a little bit, I, I got my trade station software and, and and started fiddling around with the markets and, and trading a little bit. So what was that like trading? You you traded on the floor where you're like right next to the heartbeat of the market to off the floor on a screen, more antiseptic, and you did it really before the industry did. Yes. So what was that transition like? It was very difficult, very hard. I lost all of that that pit feel Yeah, that you get in the pit. Um, and every pit has its own little idiosyncrasies and its little personalities and, and you know, order filler, large order fillers affect that. And, you know, the, uh, the locals, all those, all those parts that fit into the open outcry were gone. And I always had my most success trading open outcry in the pit when I could find a good spot to fade a large group of locals, let's say that were just the wrong way. That emotional aspect of the trading game was completely lost by being off the floor. And um, it was difficult. I didn't, I found myself trading a lot less and I found myself moving more towards equities, more towards stocks and away from trying to follow the Swiss franc or the Japanese yen or 
uh, I fiddled a little bit in bond futures and notes and, and some spreads and some other things, but I just, I just wasn't getting any track, any traction there, uh, by the late nineties, you know, going into early 2000, I was really focused more on individual equities, trading, uh, ETFs, exchange traded funds as well. At that point, I got my uh, Series 65, my which made me a registered investment advisor in the state of California. Oh, good. And that allowed me to take on some clients, uh, manage their portfolios for them through Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, whatever, and uh, charge basically a 1% of assets under management uh, fee structure is kind of the industry standard for independent investment advisors. And, and I started that kind of in the early 2000s as I was kind of moving away from futures trading. And that's kind of the direction I've been going in. So do you list your AUM now or not? Or is that private? No, not no, not now. No, I'm, st- I'm still small in that respect. But one of the things that I've been uh, striving to do with the blog is to, you know, grow my presence and grow my assets under management. Right. Okay. And that's, that's kind of been my tool to, for that. So when you're doing it now, what sort of tools do you use to decide how you're going to trade, when you're going to trade all that stuff? I have a couple of software programs that I rely on quite a bit. I'm, I'm very into technical analysis and momentum, sentiment, price action are all major tools that I use. And um, I, I've got a couple of software programs that allow me to scan. I have a group of exchange traded funds that I scan and I work backwards from there. So if the semiconductor ETF continues to show up as a, uh, as a top gainer, then I'm digging into the you know semiconductor sector and looking for the best performing stocks inside that sector. So I do a lot of scanning, a lot of technical stuff. Then that everything that that all started while I was on the floor. I was doing, I had pockets and pockets full of point and figure charts. <laughs> I mean, I had X's and O's, just one by three, two by one five. by three, two yeah. by six. Yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah, name yeah. it. Market profile, yeah. Market profile, like that, big yeah. on that. Oh yeah, and I, I would I would buy the booklet every Monday. I'd go into the book the the newsstand down in the the lobby of the Merck and buy my, my chart booklet and I'd have to get my little straight edge out and update it. Cause you know, you'd have five days there missing uh, that, you know, you had to fill in. I feel like if that was a religion, it would be like the church would be in a grid with a ruler in front of it or something. Like oh, that. absolutely. <laughs> no question about it. I mean, it, it was, I w- it was funny. Got you, you'd go to lunch and take a break off the floor and you'd, you'd miss something and you'd come back and, you would see that the market moved like 30 or 40 points. So there'd be a line of guys waiting for the CQG machine. Yeah. Yeah. To punch in, you know, their specific uh, time frame so they could fill in all their <laughs> X's and O's and right. pretty crazy. But I still rely quite a bit on technical analysis. Uh huh. Yeah. We had a, we had another guy on this program, uh, JC Peretz of All Star Charts, and he's big into that, obviously. Yes. So. Yes. I follow JC on, on Twitter and, and I like his stuff. He's a cool cat. He's a good guy. Yeah. I think he's in Reno, right? He No, he's in uh, the wine country of, uh, he's in Sonoma. He's in Sonoma. Okay. Yeah, beautiful. yeah, yeah. Beautiful yeah. area. All you, all you beautiful people out there. Yeah. 
Oh man, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I can tell you that there aren't many people from Joliet, Illinois, out in the central coast of California. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. No kidding. Awesome. So, um, you started this this week on Wall Street. So you, you know you're trading. What else do you guys do? I know you've got three partners. Do they all do sort of the same thing? Do you work together, or is it sort of every man for himself? We're working together, yet doing kind of our own thing. I mean, we're the three of us are contributing to the blog. Um, Bob Von Holly, who's in Chicago, um, does some excellent options uh, studies. Um, he follows major flows in both the put side and the call side of the option market on, uh, and basically on individual stocks. And uh, my partner, Doug, uh, who's down in San Diego, who I grew up with in Joliet, actually, he has more of a longer term view. He looks more like at, at weekly, weekly and monthly action. And he uh, likes candlesticks. I'm not a candlestick fan. I'm really old school with my bar charts. And um, I think my, my style or my sweet spot is more into a, a swing trading type of a strategy, I guess you could say. Uh, certainly not day trading by any means. And I look for low risk entry and exit levels that develop on a, on a chart after a stock has a major move, either fueled by earnings or, or some news announcement. The, the charts to me, I, I earnings still drive individual equities. They're the primary mover of a stock price. But um, Unless you're Tesla. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Exactly right. I mean, there are, there are anomalies and Tesla's one of them. But I think Tesla was put on earth to bury every bear market trader or short side trader in the planet. I was at a dinner the other day and this guy said, I saw these Tesla fixed rate bonds. Da 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 da, and I wanted to short him, and I never did. And I looked at him, and I said, "That would have been the toughest short of your life." Oh, God. <laughs> oh, the nightmares. I have. No, I I'm a f- totally keen on being short the market, but I ne- I've never shorted an individual stock. I use uh, I use the inverse ETFs a lot, and that has really helped me um, level off performance in in my portfolios when. Um, I I will take a, a portion of cash and go uh, into a um, an inverse S and P 500. You know, SDS is probably the most popular one. DXD is the Dow. QID is the Nasdaq. I use a number of those um, as my kind of my hedge if if I feel like you know the market's out over its skis a little bit. And so I never sell anything. Yeah, and in a retirement account too, you you can't short, so that helps you short. Exactly, essentially, right? Exactly, right. And it's it's very liquid, and it's a very easy way to take on a, a bearish position. I mean, shorting a individual stock is not that easy to do. So, if you were going to get into trading FX now, how would you go about that? Boy, I, that's a great question. I, I, I it would be difficult. I, I don't. I haven't spent a whole lot of time tracking and, and trading the individual currencies. Uh, I use the ETFs. I, I trade the UUP, which is the U.S. dollar index, reflects the U.S. dollar. I, I trade that quite a bit. I don't know. I, I, that's a, that's C- a great question. CME's got, you know, the traditional product was 
kind of straight FX, and then we had the E-minis, and now they're going to do these micro contracts. So the, you know, you can do kind of a, a small cookie size thing and um, make some money trading them. And it's always curious to me how people would educate themselves about certain markets. I mean, when you're on the floor and you're next to it, you get educated because everybody's talking about it all the time. And I mean, I was in interest rates for the first part of my career, learned a lot about it and sort of knew about it from college, right? I went to, you know, I took an economics course. Everybody learns about interest rates. And then when I went to trade hogs, I I knew absolutely nothing about hogs, but I knew how to trade. And so I sort of figured it out by being in the pit. And on the screen, it's sort of hard to figure out. I guess you can chart. They chart like anything else. But you do have to know something about the macro trends that could affect it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They're more powerful than the technical trends. But um, it's, it's, it's a good question. I, I don't I would I'd be willing to trade just about anything if there was uh, regardless of what it was, if there was. Uh, liquidity and some order to the market, you know, something that wasn't gapping, you know, up and down and, and, you know, without a lot of rhyme or reason. Yeah. Like cryptocurrency. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It wouldn't matter to me whether it was feeder cattle or Japanese yen. If it, if it had depth and and liquidity and uh, there was the ability to um, recognize patterns in it, in that you know specific contract, it certainly would be tradable. So what kind of trade ideas are you seeing today that seem to be good ideas for profit? Uh, the Russell looks really suspect to me right now. So I've been fiddling around with the TWM, uh, buying a little bit of the TWM, which is the uh, inverse of the Russell. So um, maybe, you know, maybe we're going to have a little bit more of a sell-off here in October. Um, a little bit more weakness, you know, there's certainly there's plenty of news items out there that you could, you know, uh, blame it on. But um, October generally is not that that powerful of a of a time of year for the for the market. So I've, I'm a little bit more cautious right now, protecting my, some of my portfolios that have more equity exposure in them with with a little bit of purchases in SDS and TWM. Yeah, and, and there always used to be a thing. I think it was, was it buy Yom? No, buy Rosh Hashanah, sell Yom Kippur. Yep, yeah. And so today is, you know, it's sundown tonight. We're doing this podcast. I don't know when it'll be released, but it's Yom Kippur. And of course, the market's a little bit lower. So yes, yeah. I didn't look to see if, if you bought on Rosh Hashanah, if it was a good one. But, you know, that's one of those old floor things that oh, absolutely used to go around. Yeah, so. no question. Interesting. Interesting. So what else are you into out, out in California? Uh, how can people get a hold of you? Well, um, the easiest it would be through the blog, um, thisweekonwallstreet.com. Also, I'm very active on Twitter. My Twitter is uh, Gary S. Morrow, at Gary S. Morrow, all together. I do tweet quite a bit. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And uh, if you follow me, you'll find my charts. I put up a few, you know, trading ideas every uh, every day, and you know, some more things that relate more to sentiment, investor sentiment, uh, seasonals. I've always been a big guy, and see, I think anybody that's traded the commodities has been on the 
on the floor and traded softs or hard commodities. They, they're aware of the seasonal seasonal forces. So I, I follow that quite a bit. Um, bonds, I've always been fascinated with bonds. So we do a lot of bond stuff, uh, interest rate, um, those kinds of things. So, Who's your best follows on Twitter for information on stocks or, or the market in general? I really like Charlie Bellello. He works with uh, uh, pension partners. Uh, he does some great uh, historical statistic, statistical stuff. Uh, he has some wonderful insights. Charlie would definitely be one of my top follows. Uh, Ryan Dietrich um, is with LPL Research. Again, some really interesting historical perspectives, which would include, you know, sentiment. Um, you know, he, he did some great things on the invert on the inverted yield curve that I really enjoyed that kind of opened up that discussion quite a bit, at least for me. What do you do to um, tamp the noise? So there's an incredible amount of noise today, way more than there was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So how do you tame that? That's a really tough one. I, I And you're exactly right. The, the amount of information that's so quickly at hand and free these days, I, it's incredible to what, you know, what, how hard it was to get info or how, how long it took or how costly it was to get really, you know, good uh, financial info back in the day. That's always a challenge with, with clients when talking with clients. Um, oh my gosh, Gary, did you see this? Did you hear that? Did you, what about this? What about that? And it's hard to get clients or, or, you know, traders and sometimes even myself, I don't have that much of a problem with anymore. I can kind of tune it out, step away from my computer and, 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 you know, try and stay more focused and, and stay in my lane. But it's a, that's a big challenge for people is to, is to ignore all that noise and, and focus on, on the fundamentals. And, and clearly right now the economy is doing quite nicely and we just had a really good unemployment report. But if you're out there, you know, reading a newspaper or clicking to the channels, you'd think we're on the verge of, uh, an 87 stock crash. Yeah, collapse. It collapsed, exactly. Uh, so for me, with my clients, that's definitely the biggest challenge is to, you know, have faith in the, in our active management in the portfolios and that, you know, we're going to um, avoid any big, you know, slump in the market and try and ignore all that peripheral noise that's going on out there that's, you know, panicking you because, you know, in the long run, it's proven to be a great strategy to stick with the U.S. stock market and, and be, you know, there's never been a better way to grow uh, wealth over the long term than be invested in stocks. And Yeah, Warren Buffett says that. Yeah, never go short America. So Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> and I, 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 I totally agree. I mean, no, there's no question we're going to have a, a, a big sell-off and we're going to have a bear market again. It's, it's going to happen. But I, I, I still go back. I, I was on the floor. My, my most, one of my most memorable aspects of my trading career, which was from what, 83 to roughly 97 or so, was the 87 crash. Yeah, that was crazy. That was just, it was insane. And I was in the, I just moved over to the Deutschmark pit and we had uh, right above us, we had the bond. Bond quotes were right above us on on the big board, and the S and P's were on the other side of the floor. 
Right, and they just roared. The roar, it was, <laughs> it was absolutely deafening. And I can remember looking up at the bonds and watching the bonds go limit up and then limit up the next day and then limit up again. Uh, and just and, and looking at the charts, you know, and, and charting that over the course of the, the, the following couple of months and looking back at that now over a, a, a monthly S&P 500 chart, that 87, it's just a little blip on the highway. And and when that was happening, it really did feel like the end of the world. It did. And behavioral economics, you outweigh that, you know, it, it gets so ingrained in your soul that every time there's a downtick, you go, it's 1987. Oh, oh my God. Exactly. Oh my God. Exactly right. I remember this guy, uh, I knew Roger Carlson, he backed me initially, decided to buy the S&Ps, uh, you know, buy the dip. Mm-hmm. And um, so he and Wayne Friedman ran an order over there. And by the time they were in and out on a one lot, they'd lost 25000 And <laughs> it was just like insane. And the next day, so Black Monday happened. On Tuesday in the interest rate futures, of course, like you say, the bonds were limit up. Well, the euro dollars opened 350 points higher. And we used to move like five points a day. Yep. Yeah, and my friend John Bailey and Jimmy Dean each sold a thousand on the open a piece, <laughs> and within a minute they were up a million dollars on them. Oh man, it was absolutely crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely insane. Oh, that that was uh that was crazy. I, I I'll never forget it. Uh, the the sound the the hum of the floor. Oh my god, the sound of the tickers clicking the the boards. Oh. You know, every time a price change, you could you could hear a little dis- little like. Click, but it was just like a roar. It, it was it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And I, I just looking around, I had friends that were uh, clerking over in the S and P's, and I, I had some guys I knew that moved over had moved over there to trade, and I knew some guys on Argus over there, and just I mean the bulk of the currency guys just walked over and stood there and watched the S and P's, and I can remember looking at guys' faces walking out of there stumbling out of that pit with cards with almost nothing written, just uh, half of a price written. Hoping. Just hoping that it, that it matches up. <laughs> just, oh, just incredible. There was a guy, he traded, um, this is, uh, pardon me for digressing into a 1987 story, but there, there was a guy who, who, who traded Swiss franc options and he'd never been in the S&P options in his life. And of course, at that time, I think you guys closed around one twenty in the afternoon. Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so um, he's like, you know, I'm a trader. I got the rest of the day. Let me just go see. And so at one twenty, he walks over to the S and P's. He stands in the S and P options, and this broker, you know, you had because it's personal. You have these kind of personal rivalries that sort of follow you around the floor. And this one particular broker hated his guts. And so saw him come in and he's like, what's here in this particular market, whatever. And Peter looks at his sheets and he makes him a pretty wide market and he didn't put any size on it. And he sell, sold him like, I don't know, f- 50 contracts or something, which was a pretty big order on a day like that in the S and P's. I mean, you're talking about quite a bit of risk. Oh Yeah. And so Peter's like, wait. And he's like, no, you didn't put a number on it. You, you're eating them all. And, you know, the guy was obviously trying to blow them out. And 
30 seconds later, another guy comes in the pit and like that strike and another strike with like 200 to buy. And so Peter made, I don't know how much money, but he went and he bought a white Jaguar the next day and put this guy's name on the license plate. It was hilarious. <laughs> and he'd, he'd drive it around. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. <laughs> that is awesome. Isn't that funny? It is. Good so, for him. Yeah. 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 Well, there aren't many good stories that usually uh, come out of, uh, you know, those type of trade situations. I always admired the guy. You know, we had some guys in the in the currency area that were just absolutely fearless that were that would take those big shots. And, and um, I always admired them. I know, you know, at the end of the year, I don't know how much more money they made than I did. Maybe a whole much more, maybe not any anymore. I don't know. But man, oh man, when they would stand in the pit and boy, I, I watched um, Richard Ford. Oh, RF, yeah. RF, yeah. he's standing on the opposite side of the pit, kind of where nobody else is because there's no order fillers over there. We're all kind of bunched in by the order fillers. And somebody in the middle of our pit has got a buy stop and he's just just banging out numbers <laughs> by, by the fives for 1165 D mark. Wow. And everybody's just standing there looking at him and the banks are scrambling. They're arbing back and forth. Give me an offer. Give me an offer. Nothing's happening. He takes it up five points, then 10 then 15 and 20. He's running up about 50 points. And Richard Ford says, so. Whoa. 1175 I'm probably off on my hundreds but it was well over a thousand dmarks wow and the pit just went dead silent and there was a little yeah, bit of now a delay let's see what happens <laughs> exactly exactly and and Richard didn't flinch he wrote the trade down on his card he checked it um with uh I can't even remember who we had who had the yeah. bus stop and within a, a couple of seconds, Aaron comes in with a, a hundred lot offer, five ticks below. Oh my gosh! And then there's another one, another five ticks below. And all the banks just, missed it. All the banks <laughs> they, they they missed it. And I was so proud of of Rich. I was like, God, I hope you make a hundred million dollars on this trade. I, mean, I know, I know. It was, it was so, and the banks were just like scrambling and, and pushing it down. Of course, all the locals now are chiming in and uh, I don't know, within seconds, it was, you know, 30 to 40 points his way. And, wow. and he very calmly covered, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll buy a hundred, buy a hundred. And he very calmly covered. And it was, uh, I'll never forget that. It was, it was, that was an awesome trade on his part. I, I admired the heck out of it. It was something I could never do. It was, way out of my risk parameters. Right. You have to know what your risk parameters and what your, you know, all that stuff. You you really do have to measure it because like there were guys like that, that would trade like that, that over the course of five years, you were probably even with them as far as making money, but the swings they had would be just wild. You oh, know? just, just incredible. No question about it. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to be was carried out of there on a stretcher, you know? So Exactly. Exactly right. I wanted to. I wanted to be able to play golf the next day, or yeah, 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 and afford to play golf. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and not be the caddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. No question about it. <laughs> so, 
Anyway, well, thank you very much for coming on the program. I uh, appreciate it, and um, it's been good learning what you do. At, and you can find him at thisweekonwallstreet.com and um, Gary Morrow on Twitter. Gary S. Morrow. Gary S. Morrow on Twitter. Exactly, yeah. Thank you very much, and I hope people reach out and talk to you. I appreciate and it, Jeff. It was great chatting. Good to chat with you again. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Okay, Jeff. Bye-bye. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Traders, thank you for making it to the conclusion of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. Once again, we'd like to thank Gary Morrow for stopping by. If you like what you heard, please rate and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or elsewhere. If you hated this podcast, then what do you say we settle this the old-fashioned way and take it to the streets, huh? Do a little bare-knuckle brawling out by the quarry. Uh, who am I kidding? Uh, just leave a comment on the blog and I'll try my best to make you happier in the future. If you'd like some additional interaction with Top Step over the internet, you should also join our exclusive Top Step Facebook community where you can talk markets and strategies with hundreds of retail traders just like you. In the meantime, I'm going to go back to drinking Pedialyte and laying on the sofa. Have a wonderful weekend, folks. Namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.